how did you leverage your LinkedIn network? How did you find folks to continuously talk to and keep the conversation going and spread the words out that there is a June, June product is coming out or is, is live and you can use it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's an everyday challenge. It's the challenge of uh, we still have today. It's uh, also one of the reasons besides meeting you and having a good conversation that I'm uh, uh, doing some, uh, you know, podcast with people. I, I trust I have a good content. Um, I think in the beginning, you don't really, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's not a number game. In the beginning, you just use your network. So you outreach to people you know by email, um, communities so if you go to a meetup or you belong to slack groups you can just ping a couple of people and then uh social media as you said are very important i think linkedin is pretty better than facebook because uh yeah. you know, you're in a working relationship with people so yeah. uh, they will understand if you ping them to show them uh, your product whereas if you ping a friend on facebook he will be like dude <laughs> uh, stop bothering me and come have a drink um so i think it's been in the beginning, you don't you don't need that. You just need enough people to give you some feedback, and eventually, as you grow, you need to have more feedback, more people, and then this is also when you have confidence into what you're building. This is where you can also also accelerate and and do one. Bonanza Growth Podcast: Innovation, Strategy, and UX for SaaS. Bonanza Studios is a growth consultancy for SaaS and fintech startups. Every SaaS business needs to fight in three different battles. First, product market fit. Discovering a growing marketing and designing a compelling and undeniable solution to meet that demand. Second, product-led growth. Turning your product into a growth vehicle by leveraging outcome-driven UX design. And third, creative marketing and organic brand building. If you're looking for a reliable partner to drive growth, check out our website at bonanza-studios.com. Enzo, pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited. Like, I've been following your content for, God knows, a century, I would say. Um, Our past has crossed a few times in Berlin, I feel. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, you, wh who, what would you do if you go back to, if you were in Roman Empire, like what would what kind of role you would be having in that society? That's a good one. I would probably be the messenger. I would probably be <laughs> the guy with the message that uh, you know crosses the fields for ages and uh, delivers the message and then uh, goes back. You know that was a, such an important like task or work. Because basically, the entire battlefield wa was dependent on what kind of message you're delivering. You could mm -hmm. be very well faking a paper and just like give it to them and say, hey, we are retreating. And actually, the, the king was saying that we, are, we have to double down on our attack. So <laughs> basically, you could mess around with a lot of... With a lot of, yeah, a lot of uh, uh, decisions. I guess they probably had like some security key back then, right? To make sure that the message was not uh, uh, changed by someone along the way. I wonder how they did that. What kind of encryption they had? Well, it's combination of blood, your family. Um, if you would send the wrong message, I think probably they would kill your family. Uh, that that could be part of the deal. Yeah, it wasn't. I think they had some security measure in place, as you said that. 
be, what would you be if we were to go back to the Roman Empire? Great question. I, I really wanted to be on the battlefield, but probably I would die very soon. <laughs> then, yeah. You, yeah, depends if you're on the front row or if you're in the back doing the, the strategy. Yeah, if I, if I wanted to be on the battlefield, I would have to be at the front. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those leaders that stay in the back. No. Nice. Yeah. If I, if I want to send my men and women, I want to be contemporary, uh, to fight and battle, I would have to be in the front. That's not, Very nice. Yeah. You manufacture. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> you would have had a short life. That's, that's 100% true. Um, Enzo, it's been a pleasure. I know you're a busy man. So I want to get to the gist of the matter. How did you found and scale June SO? Ooh, <laughs> that's, that's a big question. Found, mm. Founding June was one story. I guess scaling it is another one, which we're going through at the moment. Um, so, I mean, I'll try to give a short answer for both. I guess funding was a classic story where, uh, you know, worked for some uh, companies in the past, gained some experience, and then eventually figure out a problem I wanted to solve, and then met my co-founder in the last company I work at. Eventually, we left our job and we got uh, we got we got we got started basically. I guess that's the uh, that's the quick uh, quick story. I recently shared the post where I explained that uh, actually this is the the front of the stage, but the story is actually a more a harder one in a way. Uh, so whenever you do these decisions, I think you make uh, trade-offs or you make some uh, hard arbitrage. And so I think for us, uh, the arbitrage was, you know, keep evolving in some good tech companies and things like that. So uh, yeah, I think for me, I was in my early 30s. I was working for a top tech uh, company called Intercom. Uh, I had barely vested two years of uh, equity. And, uh, and I was kind of like, you know, giving up on the ramp to go in the startup journey, which is, uh, uh, some, some sort of hustle some days. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, having to make things happen basically with the high likelihood that it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't work. Um, so that's like the short version kind of for the funding journey of June and then scanning it is a very different aspect. So maybe I'll pause here and ask yeah. you. What kind a of lot, a lot of questions here. So you are a good example of founder with a great founder market fit. Means that you knew a lot about the field. That it's a product. It's a it's a tool. June SO for product managers. Um, Enzo himself is a, has been having a long career in product manager and so you knew so much about the field and then you decided that there are certain pain points that are being unmet and then you jump right into it correct yeah yeah that's mm -hmm. correct so i mean before before starting june i was a, a pm for for six or seven years in uh, including in berlin uh, where i know you're you're currently based Mm -hmm. And uh, I think before starting June, I knew that I wanted to start a company at some point. Yeah. But what I didn't know was the problem I was going to solve and 
kind of, I always assume that I would do a B2C app, you know, or some sort of consumer product because, you know, I grew up using a lot of these products like many people. And then eventually, you know, I, I ended up working for other companies and in my nine to five, I realized that I had a lot of problems actually at work that I wanted to solve. Mm-hmm. And that actually my motion to buy some, you know, B2B software was something um, that was quite meaningful for me. You know, I was like, I was actually really excited to try new B2B softwares and solve problems. So, you know, while at work and while thinking about what kind of companies I could eventually start one day, I kept going back to my day-to-day problems, right? And my day-to-day problems were often happening at work, of course, in my evening or in my social life and so on. But kind of like the day-to-day was, was very, you know, very big in a way. And, um, and so that's when I thought, okay, how can I zoom in on the problem that is worth solving? And so I remember at that point, I, I was talking with someone who did a similar exercise that told me like, okay, maybe just do a list of like the 10 main problems you have in your life that you'd be willing to uh, use a product or a service for, and maybe that you would be willing to pay to solve, right? And then once you have this list of 10 bullet points, try to cut it down to five and then to three and then eventually to one. And, and the process from 10 to five is very straightforward. You just, you know, leave the piece of paper for one week, you come back and you look at it again and then you, <laughs> you, challenge, you challenge it. And then moving from five to three and three to one is, is very hard, right? And here, I think the, 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 best, the best process probably is to um, maybe try to explore the directions, you know, like right. there's three big ideas, like could you build three potential solutions or in, in side, side by side, or could you, you know, maybe build something this month and then next month try another idea and then see where, where, where it brings you, right? And, and that was some idea that was actually brought to me by the, my former head of product at, uh, at N26. Because he was doing a similar process of like changing ideas and, and you know, entrepreneurship uh, projects. And I thought that was a really, really good idea, actually. So I ended up uh, doing something a bit similar. So you mentioned going from 10 to 5, 5 to 3, and 3 to 1. And I think it's such an understated point or fact in the process of founding a new startup. And I can say that because. I've worked with over 50 different founding teams in the past four years, and I often find them trying to ship too much or trying to do so much in the first work, for the first working version of their application. Why it's so important to narrow it down to one? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, Startups have like just no resources, basically, right? They're just so uh, so under resourced, and so get anything. Even though we like there is this, you know, philosophy of like you can move fast and and do everything, and everything is achievable. Realistically, you have very little resource to make anything happen, right? And mm-hmm. so until you're focused on doing one thing, the odds that you actually make anything are just very very low, right? And so I think this is why the focus is just overall very important for startups. And uh, if you look at the first milestone of your startup, it's that idea, right? It's like, which idea do you pick? How do you crack on? How do you get started in one direction, right? So I think for that reason only, I think it's, uh, it's already enough to just, to just be focused and, and make sure you move forward and pick one to just get a chance to make it progress, you know? And 
I think also there is something about, you know, chasing when you're, when you're early stage, you can, you're chasing dreams, right? There is just so many directions you could be chasing. And so it's only when you settle for one ID that you're going to be maybe realistic for the first time and ask yourself, okay, is this ID and what I've built so far um, bringing me back any positive signals, yeah. any reasons to keep following that direction, basically? So does it, does it resonate with the, what, what stage are you exploring with your uh, customers? Is it uh, the ideation phase or is it a bit further down the line? Are you asking me? Yeah. Uh, um, actually, we can get to the bottom of it. So actually, what, the area that I'm working on, um, you know, I'm following you and uh, lots of other aspirational founders. And what I see that most of them that are successful, they pick a problem that they know very well, right? I'm going to have another conversation coming up soon with a revenue uh, leader. So they know a lot about revenue and they have a B2B SaaS about revenue. Fantastic. So we are focusing on product design leaders or product leaders that work with design teams specifically, right? That as the first ICP, ideal customer profile. Mm -hmm. And um, well, I'm a product design leader too. I run a team of 13 people. So I pretty much understand the space. For one is that we spend between three to six hours in calls on a daily basis. So for me is that my metric here for the success of the first working version of the product is if we can reduce the time spent in calls of design leaders by 50%, I bet people would love to use this product. Yeah. I think, I think the short circles, cycles are definitely the, the key here. Whether mm. it's like picking an ID, getting started, building something, iterating on that thing, building the next thing, which is a, you know, ten tangential or just an expansion of that first thing you've built, the, the cycles are just literally the keys. I agree. Talk to me about the cycles. What do you mean by it? Yeah, I think, I think so we talk about like zooming into an ID and then, um, you know, trying to focus your resources onto this ID. Mm -hmm. It's very unlikely that the first ID you have and the first problem, exactly the problem you're trying to solve, are going to perfectly match and work from mm -hmm. the, the first shot, right? So either you, you, you love the problem and there is like multiple flavors of this problem and you need to iterate around it, or you, you're zooming onto the right problem, but then kind of you need to iterate on the solution. Or more, more, the most common use cases is like you have to iterate on both, a little bit on the problem space, uh, or maybe drastically on the problem uh, space and then the solution. And I think the only way you can do that is with these uh, things I call cycles, which is basically mm -hmm. just these loops of iterations mm -hmm. you're going through, right? And I think it's just very, very unlikely that you get from the first get-go the, the right solution to the right problem, right? Some mm -hmm. people have that. and uh, it's great, but I think these are the exception, right? It's just very, very hard to know what people want uh, without uh, ever, you know, putting something into into their hands. And that's also another reason why there are so many, you know, successful companies that were pivots. I think. What was your journey 
from when you identify a key pain point, a leading pain point to launching your first successful version of June SO? Yeah, I mean, it's a long time. Depends what you mm. mean by successful, but it, it's a definitely a long time. We're talking yeah. about more than, more than a year of Horizon. Okay. So I think the problem, broad problem space at, at June has never changed, which is that uh, we found out running 80 plus interviews before uh, even you know, leaving our jobs and starting June, that most of the people had some sort of usage data but yes. we're, sitting, we're sitting on it and we're not really using it. Uh, and the problem was even worse when it comes to spending money. Like we learned that a lot of companies were paying for analytics, but, you know, barely using this, these tools basically, right? So we've been chasing that kind of broad problem space of turning data into insight for yeah. the last three years. But then uh, what we did is that we bucket these problems into different, uh, um, you know, parts and we've tackled them in different orders and by being more or less successful right so i think the the initial uh, approach to june was to focus more on the tracking issue so when you want to do some analytics you need to understand what people do in your product and that requires to track what they do and this is a very tough uh, complex uh, process so the first product we built was actually a google tag manager ux layer to try to solve this problem which didn't work. And then we build a Figma plugin uh, also to kind of solve the same problem, but from a different angle, more from the communication angle between the, the PM and the, and the engineer. Because uh, basically at this point, we learned that a lot of time companies are going live without tracking anything. So we, were, we thought like, okay, let's try to fix that with uh, the design file, which is the ultimately the, you know, the source of truth of what you, the engineers need to build. Uh, didn't work for a couple of different reasons than the GTM plugin. And then this is where we kind of landed with the idea of building yet another analytics, uh, which wasn't obvious for us. We thought the space was crowded and the world didn't need another one. But at this point, basically iterating with people and talking with them and trying to build products for them, we had learned that um, one of the biggest initial problems we assume was solved in the end uh, really wasn't. So we started to build the analytics and then I would say it took us a good 12 months to pull out from the ground a great uh, product analytics that people started to use with a decent retention. And uh, it's just that analytics are hard. Just to spin up a backend and an API, right. it's going to take you months and you haven't built anything on the front end. And, uh, and the problem is also the stability of your product. If you lose some data, uh, no one is going to use you. So you have to um, achieve some pretty high standard of infra to uh, to build the, the the category of product we're in. So twelve months into analytics phase of June, and you managed to get some retention by the end of it. Yeah, I think at twelve months we had. So the thing is, this is a very fascinating topic, man. Like it's one of my favorite topic. But basically, the thing is. If you pile features on features on features on your product right. until you finally hope that you're going to get a good retention, there's good chances that it's not going to work. It's good chances that you're building too much, you're building this feature factory, and you're trying to build, you know, put band-aids on, on a product that doesn't stick, right? But if you look at the product, it's nothing more than a, um, 
a combination of features, right? So right. unless you build a bunch of features and you stick them together, there is no chance that people stick around. But if you build the wrong one or you, you keep layering the wrong one on the wrong one, you're not going to get anywhere, right? So there is this very, very hard to answer question for startups, which is what is the minimum set of features you need to assemble for your product to be meaningful and to be hopefully sticky, right? And I think for us, the way we resolve that question at June was by answering the question, what's the minimum set of feature uh, that put us in the category that people are willing to buy? You know, mm. what's, what's that category that exists or this kind of like imaginary uh, bucket of like, you know, pro, pro, imaginary product, you know, thingy that people would consider buying June for, right? Mm-hmm. And so for us, for analytics, what we landed with is like, people don't really play with analytics just to play with analytics for, with one feature. They mm-hmm. tend to adopt them a little bit like they adopt a CRM, which mm-hmm. is okay, we want one and hopefully it will solve all the problem we have for the next two to three years. And maybe in two to three years, when we have grown uh, to a very different stage, we will change our, our stack. And so then we started to ask people, okay, what is the set of things you need today to switch or to adopt a tool like June? And we figure out that there was a, you know, like three, four, five things basically we, need to, we needed to cover. And so we built toward that journey of like the five core features of June. And every time we added a core feature, I think we unlock a level of, um, you know, of audience that was willing to use June, even though the product was underwhelming because they had basically less use cases to solve, right? And mm-hmm. this is why I think uh, a bottom-up approach worked pretty well for us. It's because the smaller companies that use June uh, didn't have that many use cases or that many problems. Right. So they were willing to shift you know, toward the, our solution faster than um, you know, the larger companies, basically. But the larger companies, they bring you the larger basket size. So that's where the revenue tapped in, but the initial tractions are from smaller companies, smaller teams that they have less use cases. Yes, I mean TLDR is yes, but uh, it depends how much you can horizontalize or expand within your accounts and their size, right? So I think a very successful company that proves that you don't always have to go up market is HubSpot. HubSpot is a CRM. Probably people people have heard about it, and they started by being um, so a traditional, um, you know, sales CRM, and then they moved uh, to do some support use cases. And then uh, they did some marketing use cases. Yeah. And so instead of trying to just close these larger accounts, they left them for Salesforce and they decided to own more mm. jobs or disciplines within the org of the same sizes, right? So, uh-huh. and, and, and that was like very successful for them because I think what they, it was very relevant for their product category. Mm. But I think what they learned is that once you have the track record of the customers in the company, then sales are going to be willing to tap into it. Marketing is going to be willing to tap into it and success right. is going to be willing to tap into it. So they, they had this asset, this quite unique asset that allowed them to expand, uh, I think, horizontally. And the second piece, which I think is beautiful for them, is that the depth of the market is so huge that even if they decide to you know, stay on one market size, one company size, and then do more jobs and expand uh, the revenue there, um, it's a very juicy market for them. So uh, it's, a good mar- you know, it's a good strategy. It's a good market to be in, right? So 
yes, the traditional uh, story is you have to go up market. And I think right. it's basically a matter of time until you do. But companies like HubSpot have proved that um, it's not the only approach, basically. So, um, so juicy, this story. Um, for folks, uh, six, seven people that are in the chat, if you have questions, put it on the chat. We try to get in as much as possible. Something that I... So we came all, all the way that to the point that you found the set of futures that you could convert certain number of leads into customers, get the buying, get them to use the app. So then yep. walk me through it, what happens after that and wh why you are trying to reskin June um, and introduce potentially a newer version. Yeah, I mean, so that was the initial set of features. Um, and then I think what we found is that we could grow with this kind of sticky user base. I think before that, we had a very leaky bucket. I mean, no mm -hmm. product is perfect. Every, every product is a leaky bucket in some instances, right? But I think uh, eventually when we figure out this uh, retention, um, we started to you know, accelerate a bit on the growth. And I think the interesting thing what, that happens when you have a, a sticky audience is that you understand better with your ICP. So who are the people that love your product? You also understand what are the core features they use. So the reasons why they use you. Mm. And so it aligns the rest of your business, right? It means that you can uh, you know, update your marketing website and your assets to you know, speak the right language to the right people. It means you can also update your go-to-market to look after these people because now that you have like 50 of them or 100 of them or 200 of them, you know, you can look for like a 5,000, 500 or 1,000 or whatever is your next milestone, right? So this is what we've been, uh, we've been after. We've been about, it's been about like, okay, improving our go-to-market and, um, and then again, using the signal from the, you know, the new sign-up to, to iterate on the roadmap. And after that, it's been cycles and cycles again, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, where basically um, one big milestone has been monetization. And I think the second milestone which we're going through right now is, okay, now that we know how to monetize uh, June, how do we grow uh, together with our customers and uh, you know, use monetization more as a sustaining way to build the business and to deliver value to our customers um, rather than just a way to survive, I would say, you know, which was the initial phase. So in the beginning, we kind of like, we ran a very basic exercise where we ass assess like, okay, how are we going to charge? Who's going to pay for June? And here, the, qu the question you want to answer really is uh, who gets the most value out of your product? Right. Right. And, and this is a tricky moment because people that use your product the most are not necessarily the ones that are getting the most value or the most willing to pay. So here, um, you know, a very basic exercise we did that anyone can run is just take a list of the users that are, of the people that are using your product and then next to them, put a column and say, is willing to pay yes, no. And you just be, you know, like, let's say we, we turn the monetization and we charge like a 50 bucks or 200 bucks. Would that person be willing to pay, right? And just be very honest with yourself. Like, you're going to get a lot, of, a lot of no in the beginning and it's totally fine. And then eventually you can do the math, right? Like, okay, if we were to charge 200 bucks, 80% would say no. If we were to charge 50 bucks, well, 80% will still say no, right? So you're like, okay. I have the same conversion free to paid if I charge 50 or 200, right? What does it mean? What's the consequences for my business? 
are, are these the same people that are willing to spend 50 and 200? What are they willing to, to spend money for? And you can actually really do the math like that and try to get uh, somewhere where, you know, you're monetizing these kind of features or these kind of features. Maybe you're not monetizing on the features. Maybe you're monetizing on the usage base of things like that. And you end up with a lot of scenarios, right? And I think here, this is where your vision is very important to right. help decide on which, you know, which monetization you would want to introduce and why it fits, you know, uh, the current way you think about your product and where ultimately you want to, you want to bring it. Right. And so that's what we did at this point. And, uh, and, um, the TLDR, just to wrap it up is that, uh, we ended up, uh, getting very close to B2B SaaS. So right. we had a lot of B2Cs, gaming apps, e-commerce app, platform, B2Bs and so on. And at this point, I think June could have become like very, a lot of different companies, but we decided that there was nothing really made for B2B SaaS and that this segment deserved their own solution. And we also knew that starting with this segment would help us, you know, expand into uh, the future of June and the vision we have. So that's how can we, how we kind of made a decision at, the, at that point of time. To your point, I think when it comes to pricing, I think a lot of B2B SaaS they by default they want to go after the seed pace. So in the example of my own app that I'm questioning that approach and a strategy mm -hmm. because I'm selling I'm basically trying to solve the very pressing need of product design leaders. Mm -hmm. So this app is very catered to the leaders that ha they have busy schedules. They are going to calls. Um, part of the app would the app would be more engaging if everyone from the team would log in and you know uh, be active, but the app would run without the team as well. All they need to do is basically integrate some of their apps and public channels, right? So I'm not really clear whether seat-based approach would work for my app rather than just targeting the design leaders and see how much they're willing to pay for this. I think the most mind-blowing uh, comment I got on that was from Elena Verna, the growth uh, expert. She said to me that pricing is a strategy. So whenever you ask yourself if it's the right pricing and what would be the consequence, blah, blah, blah. Basically, you need to always remember that pricing is a strategy, meaning that you can have different pricing for different strategy. And they mm. might be good strategies or bad strategies, but usually there are just multiple strategies and in ways you could go, right? And so if you were to charge per seed, you would have to derivate a very different value from the seats than if you charge mm -hmm. per usage or if you charge per project, let's say. So I'll give you an example in our industry. Basically, the business intelligence tools like Tableau and Looker, they're charged per seat. And the reason they're charged per seat is because unless you have a data analyst in your company, you can't use these tools, right? So charging per seat makes sense because it's the close zest derivation of value derivative of value that you have from this tool is the seat so charge per seat it's awesome 
it's very aligned with the, the value that people get, right? In our case, we have a usage-based pricing. So we charge per monthly active users. We found that uh, if you have more active users as a company, you are actually a more successful company and you get more value from your analytics. And so charging based on that seems just extremely aligned in terms of incentives, whereas traditional analytics companies would typically charge you on the usage of volume, which is going against the principle that we think of you being more data-driven, right? Uh, why, why, why would I charge you if, more if you track more things, right? Like I, would char- I should charge you if you're more successful and if you're growing, right? So that's, that's the second approach, mm-hmm. right? And then the flat fee, the project one is like, okay, I think you get value from my design agency if you get the project deliver. And so I'm going to create these incentives internally where uh, we need to close the project as fast as possible with the highest quality as possible because this is what the person value. And I'm going to charge on that, right? And the three different examples I gave you are three very good examples, right? They're all mm. just very different and very different strategy, right? The question is like, what do you want to do? Do you want to maximize on the project delivery and the uh, satisfaction mm-hmm. around there? Or do you want to maximize on, I don't know, the employees that you have or the contractors you're working with maybe that, uh, you know, uh, can take, our, take on more or less projects during a week, you know? Fantastic. That's a fantastic answer to the pricing model I've received in the past two months, I would say. So basically, based on the nature of your product, what it does the best, who is targeting, who is using the product, like, and what kind of value your users, your customers could unlock, what kind of objectives could achieve using your product, all in all factors in influence your pricing strategy. 100%. That is true. But you can also just swap that and turn it upside down and say, what is my strategy and what is the you know, strategy I'm going after and what's the ideal pricing for that strategy? You know, So you can really start from your strategy and be like, I know there will be multiple ways of doing it. I know I need to factor a lot of things, as you said, uh, depending on my category, depending on competition, depending on the value that people perceive, et cetera, et cetera. But you can take it all the way around and just say, what is my strategy? How do I want to tackle this market? And then, you know, iterate or fine tune with all the signals you're going to get mm. back from the market. The initial strategy you take on your pricing is going to have a long last effect on, on your business. Mm. Because as soon as you take a strategy, then people are going to reflect on the existing strategy you took. So, oh, like let's say for June, oh, you're charging per MAU. Can I get a discount? Can I get 5,000 MAU? Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have a plan where I don't have a limit of MAU, right? People think, think they think within these guardrails that you already settle yourself, right? Right. Or can I get an extra seat? Or can, do you have a package with seats, you know, for BI tools, right? People are not going to come and say, oh, have you considered to yes. com- completely drop your pricing and just go another way? Like, they never say that. Same with features and so on, right? They always look at something and the brain picks up that thing. And then 100%. they become creative from that thing, right? And then I think, I think to your point is founders, executives set the frame, set the framework, and then they complain why customers and users look at the product from through this framework. And they often forget that they are the ones who initially set that framework. They can change it. 
they can change it, of course. Uh, but uh, the bigger the you know the bigger the change, uh, the harder it is, and the more frightening it is for for people to do these changes. You know, so absolutely, uh, definitely. And I, I, we we say that at the beginning of the episode, but basically, it's so hard to get it right on the first shot that oftentimes you will have to reiterate. And pricing is one of these things, right? Like you will have to iterate on your pricing most likely. And if you have to iterate with like minor iterations, I mean, if it takes a lot of minor iterations to get to somewhere, then how do you know if you, if you should stop these minor iterations to actually go back to a huge iteration, right? Because both directions will require iterations anyway. So how do you sense that? How do you know that? And it's again like this thing we mentioned on the features that you need to assemble to get your first product with a good retention and PMF, it's very hard, right? And that's why you can read as many books as you want. You can uh, try as many startups as you want. Uh, maybe it will never work, right? Or maybe one day it will work. And this is the very unfair, what I call the unfair game of entrepreneurship. High reward, but very high risk too. That's 100%. So the path to product market fit is very conversation intensive. Yep. In the need finding phase, you have to, you mentioned you talked to over 80 product folks and that's only need finding. Then when you dare to say, identify a problem solution space, you've got wireframes, you've got working clickable prototypes, working apps. Again, you have to go there, get their feedback and bring the feedback to evolve the product then there to say you get confident that the, your product actually could solve someone's problem in a way that they'd be willing to pay for it then you have to sell it you have to find people that potentially could buy your product so <laughs> that's a long I, journey long journey long yeah. journey yeah how did you leverage your LinkedIn network? How did you find folks to continuously talk to and keep the conversation going and spread the words out that there is a June, June product is coming out or is, is live and you can use it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's an everyday challenge. It's the challenge of uh, we still have today. It's uh, also one of the reasons besides meeting you and having a good conversation that I'm uh, uh, doing some, uh, you know, uh, podcast with people I, I trust have a good content. Um, I think in the beginning, you don't really, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's not a number game. In the beginning, you just use your network. So you outreach to people you know, by email, um, communities. So if you go to a meetup or you belong to Slack groups, you can just ping a couple of people. And then uh, social media, as you said, are very important. I think LinkedIn is pretty better than Facebook because uh, yeah. you know, you're in a working relationship with people. So yeah. uh, they will understand if you ping them to show them uh, your product. Whereas if you ping a friend on Facebook, he will be like, dude, <laughs> uh, stop bothering me and come have a drink. Um, so I think it's been, in the beginning, you don't, you don't need that. You just need enough people to give you some feedback. And eventually as you grow, you will need to have more feedback, more people. And then this is, also, when you have confidence into what you're building, this is where you can also also accelerate and, and do one-to-many reach, right? You don't need to do one-to-one -one reach. So we move from like one-to-one -one channels to one-to-n -to -one -to reach. I think after we launched on Product Hunt, after like something a year of work, 
And at this point, we were just confident that our time was better spent to try to uh, you know, target multiple people at once than one person at, at a time. Right. And this is where uh, LinkedIn and all these uh, platforms have been very useful for us because they, they allow that. Um, LinkedIn started very simply. It was just more of a journal, journaling place for me where I started to share a lot of thoughts. Uh, I'm sure it looks like the same for you. And then eventually you realize that, you know, some stuff that you're writing, people like them. And then you're like, okay, I should write more about it. And then you're having fun. And eventually uh, the things take, uh, take off a, a little bit. And then uh, I guess it becomes a muscle at some point, right? Yeah. You post all the time and it, it has become a habit for you too, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. So just... Just to summarize, because it's such a great point, and I think a lot of founders are dealing with this, how I can go out there and find people to talk to, is based on what I got from you, is in the first, especially pre-launch, really rely on your one-on-one or like groups or things that you can do by yourself because you don't have a comp- you don't, you're not confident enough that you have a solution that works. But as soon as you get to a certain level of market signal that gives you the confidence, then you can invest in one to many approaches like paid ads and outbound emails and what have you. I think that's the way I would go, yeah. Because all the channels I mentioned, I mean, paid ads is another topic. Like, would you, do you want to start with ads? Is a, hmm. is a, is a, is, it can be a bit risky, you know, because uh, if you scale only on ads, then uh, your business might not be... Uh, you know, very healthy, but depends again on how, on your market and how you're doing ads. But yeah, I think nailing these channels when too many, they require some time, they require some effort, they require some focus, expertise also, not all channels are the same. They're also more competitive, right? Whereas just pinging 10 people you know on LinkedIn or uh, with a direct message or sending 10 emails requires very little, you know, Basically, I think the, the email we sent was like two lines, like, hey, I'm, I'm, starting a biz- I'm thinking about starting a business. I have these questions around the data space. Would you be willing to take out an hour to talk with me about the problems you currently face? Seeing, and then I think the end was uh, returning the favor with some value. So I would yeah. always wrap up saying, by the way, I'm, I'm more than happy to share how we're solving this problem at Intercom at the moment. And then, you know, if it's a win-win situation, people are just very happy to open a call. And this requires a meeting, right? It's just like yeah. you go on LinkedIn now and you can, you can send 10 of them in, in half an hour, you know? Yeah, that's a fantastic tip. I think that was a good template. I'm going to use it. Don't just take. Also, pr- try to be creative about what you can give without pay- spending so much money. Like I get a lot of this like partnership offers on LinkedIn that I yeah. immediately archive them because it's, it's all about take, 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 take. And they don't even spend time to think about how they can give back something to me. 100%. And, and this is true across all the, all the kind of the building phase of your product. So in the beginning, we had no products. And so what we were giving back was uh, tips on how we do it at Intercom, right? Which is nothing we couldn't share, right? Legally. And, um, and that was all we had. And then we started to build the alpha of the product. And the product was very underwhelming and couldn't do a lot of things, right? So what we did at this point is we layered some service on top of the product. We said like, hey, you know, you should use our product, but there is like 90% of the things you can't do. So when you face one of these situations, 
we're going to do it for you, right? So we're going to wow. write some SQL for you. We're going to go in your code base and we're going to do the stuff for you, right? Wow. So, and so people also got something out of June Alpha, even though June Alpha was like really crappy. <laughs> uh, and then it was June Beta, right? And June Beta had like twice more or three times more features and solving three times more problems in a better way. There was always something we were missing, right? So we would always say, okay, so for this thing, you need a, a custom template. We don't have it in June. But uh, if that's what you need, an engineer can spend a day with you, uh, with your team to do that, which is a lot, right? Like giving away yeah. an engineering day is a lot. This is what Retool did. Retool, when they started, they spent a lot of, like the engineers were spending a lot of time to spin up Retool for you know, good businesses. And uh, that's how also they closed, closed the gaps, right? And now eventually we reach a point where the engineers don't have to do too much this work. It's more the success, but it's still the same, right? There's always a customer that reaches out and says, I don't know how to do that or I can't do that. And then we have someone from success that says, can I impersonate you, go in your workspace and do it for you, right? And, and so, you know, it's been true all the way mm -hmm. uh, from, from the ideation phase to, to today with June trying to just always give value to people so that uh, there is something for them, right? And the content is the same, by the way. When you write content on LinkedIn, what you're doing at the end of the day is you're delivering value, right, for free. Right. Fantastic point. Fantastic point. Wow. Um, so one, one question that I like to ask from founders, and it's something personal to me, that when you thought about, okay, June is happening. I'm, I'm getting behind it. I'm seeing traction um, at the investor side, at the customer side. There is some sales energy. There is a market gravitational pool. Have you ever thought about your exit strategy? Have you thought about how long you are willing to invest in June before like, you say, okay, I'm done. I want to get out. Yeah, we, we thought about it. So I think it was the it was one of the first discussion we had with my co-founder, to be honest. I think it's very important. One of the reasons why, uh, the main reasons why startup uh, end is because of uh, founders, uh, you know, breaking up. And one of the main reasons why startup break up, it's like in a love uh, relationship, is that the founders don't have the same, uh, don't look into the same direction. They don't have the same vision of the thing, right? They just have different perspective on things. And so one thing we discussed very early on with my co-founder Ferruccio is uh, where do we want to bring June, right? What's the, what's the vision? Is it like a bootstrap business? Uh, is it a good uh, two, three years run, runway and then we, we sell it to a big corporation? Uh, do we want to IPO, right? And, uh, and again, it's like strategy. Uh, all of these sensors can be, can be good. It just depends where you want to go. And uh, I think one of the things we found out with Ferruccio is that we have exactly the same uh, amb ambition. Which is, uh, which is the IPO for June. Uh, it will take time. It will take a lot of time. But basically, mm -hmm. it is a very, I think it's a, um, just a curiosity approach. Like Ferito and I think we could do a lot of things in our life. And we think that the most challenging thing we could do today and the most exciting thing we can do today is actually to push it to the, the furthest you could push it, which is the IPO. And also, we have seen a lot about the data space and how little it has evolved in the last couple of years. And so we're very uh, bullish that uh, unless a company like June does bring a new fresh air to the space, 
there are not that many companies that are going to do it or willing to do it for many, many reasons, good reasons, actually, sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, both, you know, the personal motivation, ambition, and, um, and, and we, what we think the space actually needs are pushing us uh, toward that direction. Also, like choosing IPO route guarantees the most learning for you both as well, because, of course, you can, you can exit at some point a few years in, make a couple of millions, but did you get the most learning? Uh, whereas if you stay in the game for six years, seven years, eight years, and 10 years, you go through all the stages of you know, business development and growing a company. And by the time that you're done with June, I think it would position you in, in your career in a, in a unique position that I just cannot imagine. Yeah, I mean, probably, probably that's, I, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's how we picked the founder's job initially. Uh, mm. Like the, the idea when we started being founders is, was also that we would meet very smart people every, every week. And so mm. it was like, the, the decision was like, okay, it's probably the, one of the best place we could be in right now to meet smart people all the time. And then, and then I think for the, for the IPO, it's a bit different because some people start bootstrap business and then eventually they decide to raise money and go for the IPO. Some people want to go for the IPO, but then uh, they hit a wall after a year or two and they never make it. And then they're just very frustrated with that. So I think, you know, these stories are all uh, unique and, and can evolve. But um, for, for us, that was exactly what you mentioned. Like we had in mind that uh, it would be an amazing journey together, yeah. uh, amazing yeah. set of learnings and, uh, uh, and probably also the, the, the best way to challenge yourself, to be honest. Just follow-up question. I want to talk to you about traditional PM, PLG, pre-product market fit and all of that. I think if, you, if you're keen, you could do a part two. But I think you're in such a great place to be and we can end it here is that your relationship with your co-founder, how do you go about its relationship? It needs water. How do you go about nurturing it? Like, how do you go about managing conflicts, frictions? Mm. And, you know, you know, just quick thoughts on this as well. Mm, I love this one, man. I haven't put some uh, thinking uh, for some time in, into this topic to be to be transparent, but the I think it's the most I think it's probably the most important piece of that story, right? We keep seeing uh, teams that, um, you know, dismantle yeah. and, 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 and things don't work. And, uh, you know, it's a very hard balance to find because yeah. you are colleagues, but it's like almost your second partner, right? Or if you have more than two partners, uh, your third partner or whatever, but uh, it's like a very, very big commitment you're making to each other. So I think... Uh, with Ferritro, one thing we've uh, we've always done is assume that the other had the best intent, and that has always helped a lot. So, whenever there is a situation where uh, we don't agree, like really trying to understand why the other thinks differently, mm -hmm. like really figure out that the other is not here to piss you off or or just being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, but has actually something in mind and try to challenge yourself around that. And, and that has helped a lot. And I think also um, setting a CEO at June, I think helped a lot too. Like mm -hmm. we, we said like, okay, there will be situations where we don't agree, 
one of us needs to make the decision. And that's going to be my role, the role of the SEO, the CEO, sorry, SEO, CEO. And, uh, and that is very important. Like I yeah. see a lot of companies with like co-CEOs or they don't have CEOs. And I'm like always wondering how they deal with that because the role of the CEO is not to say someone is better or smarter. The role of the CEO is to say when there is a hard decision to be made, yeah. there's just one person who should make it, you know? And, and, and yeah. that's why, uh, that's why we, we, you know, put out, uh, a CEO like very early on, and, and I, I was, I think, uh, uh, suited for that role, and I really enjoyed it. That's pretty smart. I've, I've, I've seen those teams that dismantle because they wanted the founding, this, with the decision making, the founding team to be as democratic as possible, but they ended up with paralysis analysis for so long that they didn't manage to make any decisions. Oh my God. Oh my God. No, no we, don't have, we don't do that at June. Actually, yeah. At June, if you can take a decision yourself and you think it's the right one, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to call a meeting or, or anything. You have to inform uh -huh. people. So you can share that. We have a, a lot of asynchronous uh, tools for that. But uh, as much as we can avoid meetings, we do it. We're a remote company. And pretty much every time there is a meeting with the whole company, there will be someone that will challenge it and say, hey, can it be a doc? Can it be an email? You know, can we avoid that situation? I think... Uh, Virtual has been really good at it. He's been pushing really, really hard on these meetings and, and, and wasting time, you know. Protecting time is probably the best way to put it together. Enzo, I was expecting to get a lot out of this talk, but it turned into a crash course for early stage founders. I cannot thank you enough for this, to come on the podcast and share your thoughts as openly as possible. Any last words for the audience? I mean, thanks for having me, man. Uh, pump uh, for the awesome work you're doing. And uh, uh, no, I guess I guess the audience can find me maybe. Uh, I'm active on LinkedIn these days. So if they want to engage, they can. For our audience, Enzo published some of the most interesting, thought-provoking content on getting to product market fit getting your product right. So if you are on LinkedIn, you need to follow this man. I appreciate it, Enzo. I wish you all the luck with June. Um, I'm following your journey and um, I only expect great things come from you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode. For more information, go to bonanza-studios.com.